Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. And so we're glad that you're here. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. I want to make you aware that uh, we just want to challenge you uh, this week to be in prayer for all those that we have on the road. We've got a bunch of folks traveling for uh, fall break, and I want you to help me pray that God will give traveling mercies. Amen. We don't want to get any reports of any struggles or problems or issues. And so we just want to lift them up in prayer. And uh, it's just that season and we're thankful that the Lord looks after us. Well, we're delighted this morning to have some special guests in the house. Uh, Johannes's dad and brother are here from Germany. Amen. Welcome. We're glad you guys are here. And y'all don't come, y'all don't ever make the excuse, I can't, I can't make it. It's, it's too far. They got here. Amen. So uh, we're, we're, well, we uh, ended our series climate change last week. At least we ended preaching it. Uh, We're still in it. I still, I'm still getting reports that God is just really working us over on this thing, and I'm glad about that. So since I'm not preaching about climate change, I'm, I'm going to talk about it a second because <laughs> I can't get away from it. And uh, just for a moment, somebody, I heard somebody talking this week about an old movie. Some of y'all getting ready to date just how old you are right now. Y'all remember the movie called Karate Kid? The real one, not the, the sorry remake, the real one. All right. Uh, this guy was talking about that, and he talked about the, the fact that uh, Daniel uh, moved from New Jersey to California, and he came into contact with Mr. Miyagi. Do you remember what Mr. Miyagi was? He was a handyman. He was uh, in their apartment complex. He was a handyman, and Daniel would call on him to get him to come and fix things, and then when Daniel would call on him to fix things, when he finished fixing things, he would send him away. Uh, y'all missed it. He was a fixer, right? That's how we treat Jesus. He's a fixer. And it's not that he's not good at it. Mr. Miyagi was good at fixing things, but, but we call Jesus when we need him to think, fix things, and then when he's finished fixing things, we want to send him away. But Daniel had a revelation when Daniel's life was on the line. Y'all remember after the dance, they were walking home, and the guys from Cobra Kai came out to beat him up, and they're about to kill him, and he thinks he's about to lose his life. Then Mr. Miyagi appears out of nowhere, and Daniel has this revelation. Mr. Miyagi's not just a fixer. He's really a teacher. And that's where we need to be. If we want the climate of our lives to change, we need to approach Jesus not just as a fixer, but as a teacher. And so even though we're out of that series and we're moving to some other areas, I just want you to understand, hashtag kingdom climate. Ah, There you go, Kim. I said it. Hashtag kingdom climate. We're allowing Jesus to continue to teach us. We don't want him just to fix us. Don't just come and fix my problems and let me send you away. And then you come back and I'll holler at you when I need you again. We want to allow him to become our sensei, our rabbi, our teacher so that he continues to adjust the climate of our lives. So we're going to let him teach us this morning. See, I've discovered this, at least this is true, I think. I think I'm telling you some truth here, and that's this. If you've read the Bible for any length of time or at any level of depth, then you will understand what I'm getting ready to say to you. There are some accounts 
in Scripture that I have Herculean struggles with. When I read them, I internally have some issues to connect or relate. Because, see, you need to understand how I try to read the Bible for myself. I'm going to give you a little insight how I read the Bible for me. I read the Bible, and, and I can't help it. I tend to place myself in the account. It just makes more sense. It's easier to understand. So, like, when I'm reading the account of David and Goliath, I don't know who you place yourself as, but I, I choose to put myself in the place of Goliath. Maybe it's my height. Maybe I don't, I don't know. But, but I just tend to make myself, when I'm reading about David, I, I try, I, David and Goliath, I try to place myself and become David in my own mind so that I can understand. When I read the story of Jonah, I mean, there's only two options. You're either Jonah or the fish. So I, I choose Jonah. And, I, and in the New Testament, when I read about uh, when Paul, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, preached all night long, so long, that a young man that was sitting in the windowsill fell asleep. Well, I can relate to that one, so that, I don't have any problem, problem with that one. But um, there are some struggles that arise when I read certain accounts. And the issue I have is this, is that in these accounts that I read, the narrative, as hard as I try, the narrative of what I read I just can't seem to marry my own experiences with what I read. And so I struggle. There are two particular accounts that I've been thinking about over the, uh, oh, I don't know, the last six or seven weeks that I want to draw your attention to just in passing this morning. There are two accounts I have issues with that I struggle to understand. Not all the aspects of the accounts, but certain aspects. Let me see if I can help you this morning. The first one's found in John chapter 4. It's the story of the woman at the well. You know that story well, I hope. Uh, it, it's the story of the account that when Jesus is walking in our midst, he is making his way back to Galilee, and rather than going out of his way like a good Jew, because a good Jew was supposed to bypass the region of Samaria because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They, they, were, they were the scourge. Nobody liked them. They were, there was prejudice against them. Jews would have nothing to do with them. They would literally go out of their way to avoid them. And Jesus was on his way back to Galilee. And rather than doing what a good Jew did, he intentionally and, and on purpose went through Samaria. And you remember the account. He... Uh, comes to the outskirts of town and alone in the middle of the day, which is a sermon in of itself because uh, it speaks to the status of this woman in the community because she wasn't there with all the other women. When all the other women came to the well to get water, she was all by herself, showing us that she probably didn't uh, have a lot of friends and that she was shunned by the other women and nobody wanted to be around her. And Jesus comes through the outskirts of the town and he stops at this well and there's a Samaritan woman there and he starts up a conversation with her and he asks her for a drink. And as she's debating with him about how he's going to get a drink, he begins to share words of wisdom and knowledge about her life and in the conversation he says to her you have been married five times and the man you're living with right now is not even your husband he read her mail and interestingly enough that was all the insight that was needed imagine that to cause this woman to realize that this Jew was no ordinary man in fact, by the end of their conversation and their dialogue, she concludes that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And I understand all of that and I have no issues uh, 
putting myself into that. But here's where my struggles begin. Because the very next scene is this. She has this conversation with Jesus. He tells her all about herself. She runs back to her village. And she begins to share the news. That she's found a man that must be the Messiah. Because he told everything that I ever did. Now here's the struggle. The end result is is that most of, if not all of the villagers, come out and meet Jesus and they become believers in him because of her encounter with him. Okay, that's number one. Y'all wondering where in the world I'm going. The second one that I struggle with is very similar. It's Mark chapter 5 and 6. It's the account of the demon-possessed man. Y'all remember the demon-possessed man. This is the, the man that's living in the, the cemetery. This is the man that everybody has tried to chain and clothe unsuccessfully. This is the man that the people that live in the region where he's living, they have named him Legion because he's got so many demons on the inside of him. Y'all remember him? Yeah, y'all, y'all remember. And Jesus begins this journey and docks his boat in that region and he comes face to face with this man that's completely and utterly and totally out of control Jesus never medicated demons word Jesus cast demons out and that's what happens in this account you know that Jesus uh, encounters this man he's crazy he's out of control and he casts him out he cast out the spirits and the spirits respond to Jesus and say if you allow us allow us to go into these pigs and he says go ahead go for it and and all of a sudden this huge herd of pigs filled with all these demons runs off the cliff and kill themselves y'all remember and you also know what happens the result is the people who own the pigs who were apparently much more concerned about their money than they were their neighbors get angry and ask Jesus to leave and so Jesus loads back up in the boat And this man that was demon-possessed, who's now clothed and in his right mind, comes to Jesus and says, I want to go home with you. You've changed my life forever. This is something I've never experienced before. Let me go with you. And Jesus says, go home and don't tell anybody what happened. And the man obeys and disobeys. He obeys in that he goes home, but he disobeys and begins to tell everybody about what happened. Okay, that's Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes back to the same region and the experience is totally different. This time when Jesus comes back, he makes this return visit and now the same people who ran him off the first time, they recognize him and then everyone in the region, go read it for yourself, everyone in the entire region begins to bring their sick and their diseased into the streets to be touched by Jesus. So my question is this, why? Why run Jesus off the first time and then on a return visit embrace him so enthusiastically? And I submit to you this morning that I believe it's because of the experience of one man that brought about a change in the entire region. Okay, so I can boldly state with no problem this morning that when I begin to read those accounts that, that I, I get it. I can place myself in the story enough to recognize that uh, Jesus 
like he confronted the woman at the well and like he confronted the demon-possessed man, I was just as bound, I was just as crazy, and I was just as messed up before I met Jesus as they were. When I read the accounts, I willingly testify that I was lost, I was just as lost, just as desperate, and just as needy of a Savior as the wild woman or the chained man. I can, I can relate to that. I can, I can understand and I can read myself into the lostness of those individuals. Anybody else want to testify this morning? You too, huh? At least three of you. Okay. Um, but here's my struggle. I can see my lostness in these folks, but my experience has not been that once Jesus changed my heart and redirected the path of my life, I cannot understand or read myself into the account to the place that an entire town or a whole region turns their heart to Jesus as a result of my encounter. It isn't that people couldn't see the change. And it isn't that I haven't tried to faithfully represent him and the change that he produced in me. It was just that my experience didn't produce that kind of change in the places I lived. And I would, I would venture a guess that that is true for most of us sitting in this room this morning. And I would also venture a guess that that fact that your experience with Jesus has not produced that kind of change and you struggle to read yourself into that part of the account, that I would venture to guess that that probably bothers some of you like it has bothered me. So what I want to do this morning is I want to draw your attention to another account that I believe is going to help you. Because it's helped me. Now, I want you to notice something. I'm going to stop right there. Here's the disclaimer. Notice I said, help you. I did not say, let you off the hook. I'm going to say that again. What we're getting ready to read will help you, but it does not let you off the hook. And the reason I say it that way is because if we are not, a, we're not careful, what we do is we allow the fact that we don't and can't relate to this regional transformation that we see in those accounts, we, be, we allow that to become an excuse or a justification to refuse to do what we can do. And so I want to help you and since those accounts are so foreign to most of us, I want to go into one that gives us a place and an assignment and see if it doesn't help us. Join me in John chapter 1. I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 35 and read down through verse 49. Read yourself into this account. I think you can. I think you should. I think we ought to. I think we will. The next day, John was back at his post with two disciples who were watching. He looked up and saw Jesus walking nearby, and he said, Here he is, God's Passover lamb. And the two disciples heard him and went after Jesus, and Jesus looked over his shoulder and said to them, What are you after? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he replied, Come along and see for yourself. And they came and saw where he was living, and they ended up staying with him for the day. It was late afternoon when this happened, and Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John's witness and followed Jesus. And the first thing he did after finding where Jesus lived was to find his own brother Simon 
telling him, we found the Messiah, that is Christ. He immediately led him to Jesus, and Jesus took one look up and said, you're John, son, you're Simon. From now on, your name is Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and when he got there, he ran across Philip and said, come and follow me. Philip's hometown was Bethsaida, the same as Bethsaida, the same as Andrew and Peter. And Philip went and found Nathanael and told him, we found the one, the one that Moses wrote of in the law, the one preached by the prophets. It's Jesus, Joseph's son, the one from Nazareth. And Nathanael said, Nazareth, you've got to be kidding. But Philip said, come see for yourself. And when Jesus saw him coming, he said, there's a real Israelite, not a false bone in his body. And Nathanael said, where did you get that idea? You don't know me. And Jesus answered, one day long before Philip called you here, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. I want you to notice the difference between the accounts that I alluded to earlier and this one. I want you to notice that in this account, two of the closest of Jesus' followers, they they come after Jesus, they're following John, and they, they, they hear John's testimony about Jesus, and they leave their post from following John, and now they begin to follow Jesus. And after they encounter Jesus, their response is to do this. Go and find one. They go and influence one person. They double themselves, if you will. There's no immediate regional transformation, but there is transformation nonetheless. There's no citywide revival, but there is revival nonetheless. They double themselves. So this account gives us a place to land. If you're like me and you struggle to read yourself into the account of the woman at the well where an entire village comes to know Jesus because of her encounter, or if you're like me and you struggle to read yourself into the account of the demon-possessed man where an entire region acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God if you're like me what this passage that I just read to you does is it gives us a place to land and it gives me a mandate and here it is when you encounter Jesus you have a mandate to help others encounter him we've said it like this just as a reminder refresher course found people find people that's our mandate Another way to say that is this, one people win people. And I just need to help you this morning to understand that the scope of your influence may not be as broad or as publicized as the wild woman or the messed up man, but the assignment that God has placed on your life is exactly the same. Influence others around you to know Him. I want to say something to you this morning because I think we forget this and because we read those accounts and they're so dramatic and they're so, so mind-boggling that we forget this. I just need you to understand that just because you may not win multitudes does not mean that you have been released from the responsibility and the obligation and the great privilege of finding one. Double yourself. 
See, here's the truth, and I'm going to burst somebody's bubble in the room, I know, but here, here's the truth that, that I'm, I'm beginning to realize, and I hope you'll realize it too, is that you probably aren't called to everyone. But it's time to embrace the truth and the fact that you are called to someone. In fact, I want to say this to you so you get this into your spirit and understand. The truth this morning is regardless of where you are in your walk with Christ, early follower middle like you've been 10 years or some of you've been following Christ for 50 years the truth is still the same it doesn't matter the truth is is that you are called to win someone and the truth is this is that there are some people that you're called to that nobody else will be able to influence or win how many of you understand that we cannot allow what we cannot do to keep us from doing what we can do some of you won't do anything about influencing anybody because you're overtaken by the fact that you're not Billy Graham and I don't have this ability to stand up before great crowds and win multitudes and so we'll sit at home and tell nobody because that's not us. Let me, let me help you this morning. Paul in Thessalonians wrote to the church in Thessalonica and he shared this statement. I want you to listen to this statement carefully because this is where we land. This is where we need to land. Listen to what he says carefully. He said, we loved you so much. Kingdom climbing. Sincere love. Which then leads us to connect. Okay, just make sure we're still on the same page. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our lives too. Okay, here we go. That is an incredible reminder of a simple fact. Are you, are you with me? Our goal, once you've met Jesus, and I'm trying to give you a place to land, is the same as the disciples on that day. Our goal is to produce disciples. Okay. But here's what you got to know. According to what Paul just said, discipleship is not just hearing the gospel message. It's not just about gaining knowledge. It's about applying that knowledge to your everyday life. And because of that, discipleship cannot happen apart from us sharing not only the good news, but sharing our life with people. That's why the guys that stand on the street corner yelling at you when you go by, repent or go to hell, are very ineffective because most people never surrender their life to Jesus because somebody's yelling about the good news to them. The people that are rescued and turned onto the path of Jesus and begin to live their life for Him are generally the people that we share the good news with followed up by sharing life with them. I'm going to make a bold statement that's going to mess some of you up. That truth then is why church programs and preaching will never make disciples. I just want to see how that's going over because that, that flies right in the face of how most of us view church because we think if the church had the right programs, 
then everybody would be transformed. And if we had a better preacher, man, if he could just preach a little bit better, he's all right, but if he could just preach a little bit better, then everybody would be transformed. How many of you know you can sit in here week after week and hear me preach and never be transformed? So the truth is then that church programs and preaching are part of the discipleship process. But they can't pull it off by themselves. In fact, what it means then is that if the church is completely responsible for the discipleship process, we are miserably doomed to fail. Because discipleship requires daily life investment with others. So what does that mean for us? That means I'm glad to see you every week. I am so thankful that you are so faithful in your attendance and that you are here more weeks than you're not. But at the same time, I want to tell you what would make it even better. It would be better if I had to do a double take because I look at you and I see and begin to see that there are two of you. Why? Because healthy organisms reproduce. And if you genuinely understand our mandate and our assignment, then what that would mean is, is that during the course of the week, you would be sharing the good news through your life, and you would be sharing your life with people, and then you would bring them to see. Okay, this is, this is tough. Can I say to you this morning that if you are not reproducing yourself, what it does is it gives us a report card about your spiritual health. Okay. In fact, I'm on, well, this is, this is harsh. In fact, the amount of evangelism you do reveals how happy you are in, re, in your relationship with Jesus because we have a tendency to talk about what we're happy about. Because I heard some of y'all talk about like cars and football and restaurants and vacations and but I just haven't heard much talk about Jesus. Okay, why am I saying all this? Because I believe that we, I've already said this, you know this to be how I feel. We are educated beyond our level of obedience. So what we do is we have no issue showing up week after week by ourselves. It does nothing. I, I, can't, I can't see into your heart. I can only go off of what I see happen week after week. And I'm just going to say how I feel like the Lord told me to say it. My issue this morning is that it does nothing to our heart to experience life-giving and life-changing worship. To come in and experience the fellowship that we have longed for all week long and that others out there long for. To hear the word, and all the while we look around and we see empty seats, which means that someone else could have experienced what you just experienced, and it doesn't bother us. It just gives me room to spread out. By the way, can I just let you in on a little secret? I've never seen an empty chair give its heart to Christ. Just saying. Just saying. I know it's profound. I'm just saying. 
Okay, let me say it like this then. J, or Oswald J. Smith said this, and maybe he said it better. Any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited it, forfeited its biblical right to exist. But you don't understand, Steve. I can't seem to get the attention of my entire neighborhood. I mean, I like I got stickers on my car and I got yard signs in the yard and, and I come home every day after passion on Sunday and I as I'm going in the house I go, I love passion as loud as I can and nobody will pay any attention. Welcome to my world. Welcome to most of our worlds. I don't even know anybody in this room that could honestly say that the encounter you've had with Jesus has changed an entire town or had such a regional impact that revival broke out because of you. So here are my questions, and then we're going to do something this morning. I hope that will help. Here are my questions. Who do you know? Here's, a, here, here's maybe a better way to question. Who do you have influence with? Who could you bring to see? That's, that's, the whole, that's the whole account that I just read to you. The disciples doubled themselves not by having citywide revivals. They doubled themselves by just talking to somebody they knew and that they had influence with that they could bring to see. So here's my challenge to you this morning. It may not be an entire village, but I am challenging you to get double vision. To bring one. To share your life with them all week long so that when Sunday rolls around and they want to come and hang out with you, you go, well, come and hang out with me at church. I'm going to bring you to see why I am the way I am. So if you found Jesus or Jesus has found you, not arguing about that, just saying, then it's time for you to find somebody else who needs him and bring them to see. Start the discipleship process by bringing them and then allow that to open the door to share life with them so that they will be changed forever like the account that I read to you. So, I am, so, so I'm, gonna let, I'm not letting you off the hook. I'm helping you. Here you go. You're, you're never going to go to another church and hear it just like this, what I'm getting ready to say, okay? Here it is right here. I am not telling you to go out and change your world. Let's be realistic. I know you got like 500 likes on Facebook. That's not friends. I, I get it, but they're not really friends. So I'm not telling you to go out and change the whole world. I am asking you to simply start with baby steps and double you. So let's change the question from this. How many... Let's change it to this. To who? One of the saddest commentaries on our life will not be whether or not we want our city to Jesus. Because most of us don't have that kind of influence. One of the saddest commentaries on our life will be this. They didn't win one. 
Not one. Not one family member. Not one classmate. Not one neighbor. Not one co-worker. They literally encountered Jesus. He changed their life. And then they kept Jesus a secret from everybody around them for the rest of their life. Went to the grave. Went to heaven. And never brought one person to see. That is the saddest commentary. You're not going to be held accountable. Did you hold any citywide crusades? Because most of us don't have that kind of ability or platform. But we do have a mandate and a responsibility to win one. So I'm not trying to guilt you into evangelism. I am simply trying to remind you of our mandate and our great privilege and ask you this question. When was the last time you brought one? How many months have gone by? How many years have gone by? How many decades have gone by that you came to church week after week after week and sat in either this church or another and never during the course of the week shared your life enough that somebody wanted to come with you to see Jesus? Double vision. I want the ushers to come. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have four stations this morning. Two in the back, two in the front to make it easy for you to get to them. They have a card. It says double vision on the front. On the back, there's a slot for you to write down the name of one person. And the challenge that I'm placing on us is this. Because we are working so hard to establish kingdom climate, people should want to be a part of what we're building, then I'm asking you then, because the only way they're going to be a part of what we're building is you. You have influence with one. I don't have the influence with the person that you have influence. You have influence. And so what I'm asking you to do is, uh, here in a moment, I'm going to release you and ask you to grab, go to one of these ushers, take one of the cards, and on the back, there's a slot. You're going to write down one name, and over the next six months, I'm asking you to intentionally try to double yourself. Think about the implications of that just a moment. You may not have as much space. They might park in your spot. They might get the last cup of coffee. But that's our mandate. That's our assignment. And I'm going to ask you to intentionally fulfill the assignment. Father, this morning I pray that you would give us... Um, a wake-up call that we would shake apathy off of our lives to where we really don't care that we come week after week and hear life and experience life and fail to share it. God, I pray that you would help us to realize that there are people around us. We may not win everybody around us, but there are people around us that you've assigned us to that nobody else has the kind of influence that we have. And if we don't fulfill this commission on our life, They'll never know you. So, Father, I pray that in this moment, in this moment of searching our own heart, I pray that you would bring one person to mind. Not an entire school. Not an entire community. Not an entire company or business. One person. I pray that we would begin the process of discipleship and we would share our life with them and in the course of that sharing they would want to see Jesus 
ask you would accomplish this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? This is how I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to move out. I want you to go to one of these ushers. Grab a card. I want you to go back to your seat, or maybe you want to stay here in the front. I want you to spend a few moments in prayer and ask God, who do I need to double? Who, who is it that you've assigned me to win? Write their name on that card. And when you're finished, you can take your seat again, and then we'll close. But I want you to do this. Let's do this together this morning. Come on, I release you this morning to get one of these cards. Once you get it, take a few moments and pray over it. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind who you need to write down on that card. Father, in this moment, I pray that you would show us the who. I pray that you would change the question in our own mind from how many to who. I pray that each and every one of us would take this as a mandate and an assignment that is close to your heart because we believe that found people find people and that one people win people. Father, I pray that we would become involved in the discipleship process and quit laying the discipleship process all off on the church or to a preacher, but instead we would become individually involved and we would go out and influence one person, just one person, because we never know leading that one person may start a revival like we've never seen before. I pray that you would assign in our own hearts. I pray that we couldn't get away from it. God, I pray that even if we don't really take this seriously and we take this card and throw it off to the side and never pick it up again, I pray that something would happen in our own heart and in our own spirit and that we would be unable to escape. And instead, what we would see happen is that we would become overtaken and consumed by the need to win this one person. And every time we're walking through our daily life, they're, they're face would come to mind and their 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 life would come to heart and when we go places we would just randomly bump into them 
and, and out of that you would be screaming to us. That's your assignment. That's your assignment. I pray that you would give us individually and corporately double vision this morning. And we would begin to see people born into your kingdom based upon our own ability to share our life and to share the good news as we share our life. And Father, we'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more Passion Church resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.